So if you're in Romans 1, let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord. And then we will pray together. I want to begin in verse 14 to grab some context for us this morning. So Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul writes, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you with thankful hearts that we have the opportunity to worship our God. The God who created the heavens and the earth with the power of his word and the God who saves through that same powerful word. Father, we praise you for what you have done through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for providing the sacrifice that we could not give. We thank you for his death that fully paid for our rebellion against you and your holy law. Father, thank you for adopting us through his sacrifice in order that we might become the children of God. And Father, we praise you for filling us with your spirit, that we might know you and that we might walk with you by faith. Father, I pray that your spirit would be so active among us this morning, especially in myself. Lord, I pray that you would animate my thoughts, I pray that you would fill my mouth with your words and I pray that you would sanctify this sermon and make it pleasing in your sight and edifying to these precious people who have been purchased with precious blood. And I pray that these people as well would be animated by your spirit, that they might set aside every distraction of heart and mind and they might hear the word of God as if it is oxygen that enables them to breathe and they might treasure it and they might possess it for themselves and humbly obey it. Lord, we praise you and we love you for our precious time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Take it back to last week or week before last. We spent most of our time in verse 5 where Paul begins with these words, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And then he closes with this phrase, for his name's sake, literally for the sake of the name of his. And we came to the conclusion that everything that we do, every little bit of our lives need to be lived under that phrase with that motivation of our hearts. Everything for the sake of his name. So we are about to dive into the longest and most glorious description of the gospel on the planet Earth. 
And the first question that came to my mind was this question. Why do we even have this gospel? What is the purpose of this gospel? Now, if you're like most, I'm afraid you would answer that question with yourself in mind. You would immediately turn to something to do with you is the very reason that we were given the gospel. But you need to understand that is not the reason. And that is not the purpose. And that's why I wanted to start back in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel answers this question, why we even have this gospel. So you're in Romans, I assume. So back up just a little bit to where you marked just a minute ago. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22. I want to begin reading there. And I just want to read a few passages so you can understand why we even have this gospel that we're literally about to spend at least a year, if not two defining it and understanding it in all of its glorious detail. Now, a little bit of background as you continue to turn back to Ezekiel 36. By the time we get to Ezekiel 36, the wheels have come off the bus. Everything is in the ditch. Everything, smoke is rising from the ashes because God has dropped a match on it all. All of his people have been swept away. We've already seen Jerusalem get sacked. We've already seen the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. And so by the time you get to 36, again, as the smoke is rising up from the ashes, God speaks of something glorious that he is going to do. It's a promise. So put yourself there and understand the concept or the context rather of the promise that God speaks to us. And he begins in verse 22 and notice he's speaking to this people who are under the judgment of God at the current moment. And he says there, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. He goes on to say, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the lands. I will bring you into your own land. And here comes the promise of the gospel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So in the midst of all the judgment of God that's going on in this moment, God gives them a promise that He's going to cleanse them and He's going to fill them with His spirit. And then He comes back to it. If you'll notice with me in verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. You need to understand. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for the sake of my own name. And so you have to understand that the promise of the gospel was given for the sake of the name of His. And when we get into the New Testament, we get into the gospels, even in Romans this morning, when we begin to lay out the gospel for us, you have to understand we have this gospel for the sake of His name. And I remember going over this about eight and a half years ago and unbelievers were here and, and some evidently new believers are here and they shook their head no. 
They didn't even understand that. Because everything was about them and what was going on with them. But this gospel is about Him. And it's for His glory and it's for His namesake. So when we think about these words, when we think about all that we're about to undertake in defining and understanding this gospel, we have to keep coming back to that one reality, that one truth, everything distilled down to one thought. It is all for the sake of His name. So let's go back to Romans and begin walking through this, especially verses 16 and 17. And we'll be here for, I don't know, two or three weeks trying to understand what it is the gospel does. Now, most say that 16 and 17, where Paul begins, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, most see this as the theme of the letter. I would agree with that. I would also say that it's the thesis of the letter because this is the outline of the letter of the Apostle Paul. And anytime I begin to go through the book, I try to reduce the book down to a title, hopefully one word or, or maybe two words. And you've got a lot of words to wrestle with trying to decide, well, is, does this word rightly define the entire book of Romans? I mean, you have the word faith, and that'd certainly be in my top two if I was going to define this entire book. He mentions faith three times in verse 17. He says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he goes on to say, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So without question, the book of Romans is going to help us understand what is biblical, genuine faith. In fact, chapter 3 and 4 is all about faith. But you also have to understand that this word righteousness is brought to us. And Paul is about to spend the next four chapters helping us understand what is the righteousness of God. And so that certainly is a major significant part of this letter. You've got this idea that the gospel has come to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And Paul's going to take 9 through 11, helping us understand what he means by that, from Jew to the Gentile. But you get all the way back up to the beginning of verse 16, and you see the gospel. And I'll tell you now, if I was going to title all that we're going to do over the next couple of years, those would be the two words that I would pick. Romans is the gospel. From beginning to end is the gospel. Now we've already understood what it is. And if you look back at verse 2, he tells us exactly what it is. It was promised in verse 2 beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And from beginning to end, the gospel is concerning the Son. Who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. It's all about the Son. But then you also have to understand what the gospel does, and that's in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for here's what it does. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So we go from what it is to what it does, and then Paul's going to lay that out, as I said, in chapter after chapter after chapter, all the way to chapter 12. Now, in regard to the gospel, this is where we left off last week. Paul says, I've got three words that help you understand who I am in relationship to the gospel. And the first word that we talked about last week is Paul says, I'm obligated. I'm obligated to God. I'm obligated to the gospel of God. And we said last week, we don't like that word, do we? I don't want to hear the words that I'm indebted to anyone for anything. But Paul says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm indebted to God. 
And hopefully we understand that that's a good word to help hopefully describe who we are as the people of God. We're indebted to God. We're obligated to God. And you say, well, why would you ever say that? And it's for this simple reason, because he died for you. And he tells us this, or Paul tells us, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And so if you want to know the reason for your life, if you want to know the purpose of living, it is for His name's sake, and you're obligated to that because He died for you, and through His death we have life if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're obligated. But it's a joyous obligation. An absolute joy to be obligated to the One who died for me. The second word that Paul uses is, I'm eager. I'm ready to go. It says that in verse 15. So for my part, I'm eager. I'm just ready to go and do this. And then he tells us what it is he's going to do. He's going to preach the gospel. But then he uses this third word, obligated, eager. Then he has this idea of unashamed. And this is a word that we didn't talk about last week. Paul says, I'm unashamed. And to be honest with you, I, I've spent most of my time thinking about this one word. Why would you ever use that word? What has that got to do with anything? And he goes on to tell us why he's not ashamed. And the reason is, is because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why I'm not ashamed, he said. But why would you use that word? Why would you even present it in such a fashion as saying, why do you have to say that you're not ashamed? And heaven forbid, why would we ever be ashamed of the gospel of God? Now, Paul says something here that most people think that he's using. Let me teach you a word. It's not a Greek word. It's, a, it's called a latotes. If you're taking notes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It's a way of expressing yourself that we do on Sand Mountain all the time. Let me give you an example. Let's just say I had my grandchild up here. The one that I don't have. The one that's not on the way yet. But just let's say that wonderful child presented himself from Texas at Corinth Baptist Church, and more than likely I would preach for that baby on my hip. But let's just say I introduced that child to you, and I held it up right here, and I said, now, now like, just like Cody's doing right now back there, I'd say, now look at here. I'm not ashamed of this right here. And you would laugh, and you would understand exactly what I'm doing. I'm using a negative statement to put emphasis on the positive. There ain't no way I'm ashamed of this one. In fact, I could not be more proud of this child. So most people feel like that Paul's using this latotis, or latotes, however you pronounce it, to emphasize the fact that, hey, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I could not be more proud of the gospel, right? But here, here, here's the reality. There is a temptation for all of us to not be more proud of the gospel than anything. There's a real temptation for us to actually be ashamed of this gospel, believe it or not. In fact, our Lord says in Luke chapter 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. So there is the potential. There is the temptation every single day for you and I to be ashamed of what we have here in this precious gospel. And I know what we say, how could we ever be ashamed? Well, I don't know, brothers and sisters, but we are. And we wrestle with it almost in every conversation, 
in almost every circumstance, we wrestle with the reality of being ashamed of the one thing that's by far and away the most precious to us. Now, we know for a fact that for the world, the gospel is absolutely not a powerful thing. In fact, the gospel is a very shameful thing. Listen to what Paul tells the church at Corinth. And if you're taking notes, jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I would read all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we don't have time for that this morning. But let me read you some of the passages that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And then he says this about the gospel, For the word of the cross, which he refers to as the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set it aside. And then he asks the question, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the things of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom has not come to know God. And then he says this, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to a Jew, a stumbling block, and to a Gentile foolishness. You have to understand that the natural man, the unsaved man, everything that is precious to us is foolishness to them. They despise it, it's shameful, it's offensive, and they do not want to hear it. They do not want to see it. They don't want to be reminded of it in any way. And every time you and I present ourselves in a Christ-like manner, every time we open our mouths to speak the truth of Christ and the love of Christ, they are shamed in their heart. They have this opposition to it. They're offended by it. Even if you go to work and, the, and they know that you're a follower of Christ and they're not, they're offended by you just by you being there. So when the Lord says, you know, be careful. Whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. He speaks to that as a legitimate warning to us because there is always that temptation to us to roll up, to fold up, and to fall silent when it comes to the things of God and the gospel of God. Now, the gospel was designed in such a way as to be foolish. This is the way our Lord designed the gospel. He designed it that the world would look at it and consider it to be absolutely foolish. Talk about how the gospel addresses humanity. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. You're in Romans 1. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 3. Now, in regard to humanity... God says, let me speak to humanity as a whole in Romans 3. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. Stop right there. You know how much the world think it understands? And God laughs and says, there's not one single one of you who understands anything. He goes on, 
There's none who seeks after God for all those who think that they do and have a relationship with God. He said, there's not one single one of you who seeks after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Have you ever communicated that to the world? Communicated that to the world? In regard to God, all of your thinking and all of your doing is useless. You think it's useful. You think it edifies you. You think it makes much of you. You think it makes a name for yourself. But let me tell you, in respect to God, God says, no, every bit of that is useless. It goes on to say, there's none who does good. Not even one. So when you present this to the world as the very beginnings of your gospel, you need to understand that the gospel is desperately offensive to them because it teaches them exactly who they are apart from God. You don't understand a thing. You're absolutely unrighteous in every way. There's not one single thing about you that's good. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to tell you those same things. This is where our gospel starts and this is why it offends them and this is why the gospel is such a shameful thing to them. Humanity thinks they're so full of confidence in themselves. They're full of pride and arrogance. They think that they're advanced in their thinking. They think that they've made great gains and advances in culture. They think they've done something in our days by more fully expressing the desires of their own heart. They think they've advanced because we have... How many ways now? How many genders can we have? They think all of that is advances with humanity, but it's nothing more according to God than stupidity. It's ignorance. It's without understanding. Now, not only does it put everybody into that boat and that basket, then it talks about something even more offensive, and that's the judgment of God. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at the judgment of God against the immoral man. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So in regard to all of those who have no heart for God, no concept of God, have only a concept for themselves and their life and their way of living, God reminds them, you're currently present tense under the wrath of God. You're under the judgment of God. And then he goes on to say that for all those who are moral, who think they have done good, who think they pursue God, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul's gospel begins with judgment. And if you're the type of person that ignores God and lives life to your own doing, he says, oh, by the way, you're under the wrath of God, and apart from God, you're going to spend eternity in hell. 
And for those of you who are religious and consider yourselves to be good, gaining the favor of God with all your goodness and your good efforts and your good works, you need to understand that you're storing up judgment for yourself. You're all under the wrath of God. Now, brothers and sisters, if we're faithful to the word of God and we're faithful to what God says in his gospel, how do you think that's going to be perceived by the world? And how are you going to be so bold to stand up and be faithful to what God says in his gospel? And I was reminded when I was looking through this about the words of John. John spoke to the religious people in this way. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. This is a shameful gospel. This is an offensive gospel. And I'll go on to add, just like the Lord says in 1 Corinthians, it's a foolish gospel. Listen to the details of our Savior, born of a virgin. Are you kidding me? Do you actually believe that? Born into abject poverty, born in a stable, laid in a manger no less, the Savior of the world, and to top it off, you say that He's the Son of God that's come in the flesh. God became man. It's almost laughable to even consider. And then you go on to speak about how He was the son of a carpenter who's now been made king. And get this, that man you killed on Calvary and somehow through His death He saved you? Are you foolish? Enough to believe that? Do you really think that this son of a carpenter died on Calvary and his death paid for all your sins and now you're going to stand before God and be considered holy in his sight? And what's more, that one that you killed is seated at the right hand of God with a crown on his head and he's Savior and King and Lord over all, even over me? That's funny. That's offensive. And so when we come face to face with the gospel that we've been called to preach, we realize the temptation that we have to shy back, to shrink back, to be ashamed, and not to boldly proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. God designed this gospel to be utterly foolish to the world. And you know what the world thinks of this gospel? It's utterly foolishness, just like the design of God. So since this gospel is foolishness to the world, shameful, offensive, how will we respond when we preach it? Well, the immoral man is going to hate you with a white hot anger. The hypocritical self-righteous man is going to equally hate you with a white hot anger. And when you give them the details, they're going to laugh in your face. But you know, I got to thinking about this and it's not just the gospel that's foolishness to the world you do realize that we are still one of the few churches on this planet that stand firmly on, that stand firmly on, remind me to kill that boy later, stand firmly on Genesis chapter 1. There's so many churches and so many professing Christians that has rolled over on Genesis chapter 1 because it's foolishness. In the beginning, God created, really, how many things does science have to teach you and demonstrate to you and show you that that is in no way, shape, or form possible until you idiot Christians wake up to the reality that God didn't do this? 
that it all just took place. What's more than that, you think he did it in seven days through the power of his word. Are you kidding me? You see, much of this gospel and much of this Bible make absolutely no sense to the world. They laugh at it, they consider it to be proved wrong, and they don't understand why we hold so dearly to this. So when, we un- so when Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, we need to understand. He knows full well what being faithful to this gospel as he preaches it will bring. Paul says, I'm eager, if you'll notice in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Now, those of you who know your history understand that Rome is the center of the world in that day. Culture was as advanced as culture could possibly get. Philosophy was as advanced as philosophy could absolutely get. The people were as sinful as people could possibly get. And Paul says, I'm eager to preach it there. In fact, I'm not ashamed. And when I get there, I'm going to open my mouth and proclaim it. And guess what Paul's going to deal with? The same thing he always dealt with everywhere he went. It was going to be suffering and shame, suffering and shame, suffering and shame. Let me move to the next street corner, preach this gospel, and there's going to be more suffering, more shame, more suffering, more shame. So let me move to the next corner and do it again. You know, Paul was so concerned about this that some of his very last words, he dealt with the same issue. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to 2 Timothy with me. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy, as you well know, is Paul's last words. And he's entrusted the gospel to a handful of men that he has trained. And one of those men is young Timothy. And so I want to pick up Paul's words, read a rather lengthy section, but it's all about the same thing. So I want us to follow along with Paul's thoughts. I want to begin in verse 7, where Paul says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timidity is a word that's used in the ASB. I think fear does it better. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. So why would he say God has not given us a spirit of fear? He tells us in the very next verse, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In other words, Timothy, I'm passing the baton to you. Now you're going to take that street corner over because my life here is not going to be that much longer. I want you to stand up and proclaim the same message and I want to remind you that God has not put that spirit of his within you in order that you might be filled with fear, right? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony, which is the gospel of our Lord. Continue on in verse 8, or of me, his prisoner, who by the way is in prison now for preaching the gospel. But notice what he says, join with me in the what? The suffering for the gospel, Now, Timothy, I want you to walk side by side with me in this suffering for the gospel. Don't have a spirit of fear, but have a spirit of boldness and don't be ashamed. Now, immediately, 
what's a shame being brought into the context with? Suffering. See, God understands. I've made this gospel foolish. I've made this gospel offensive. I've called you to preach it, and I know what's going to happen. You're going to suffer for it. You're going to open your mouth at work, and they're going to ridicule you for it. You won't be involved in all your conversations that you'd like to be because they know you're going to be a believer. So you're going to miss half the things that go on after work and on weekends. You're going to be cut off from half the relationships. But that's the beginning. You're going to lose your job at some point because you're going to stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Let's go further. Some of you are going to be kicked out of your homes. And I think about those three men who just professed faith in Christ in Thailand. Now suffering's reached an entirely new level. And it's probably going to come to the point, and it does for some of my brothers and sisters, where they're going to lose their life for the sake of the gospel. And God says, don't be ashamed. It's a part of this gospel. I've designed it in this way. It's foolish. It's offensive. But don't you dare be ashamed of it. You join with me and join with my people in the suffering of the gospel for the sake of His name. He describes the gospel in verse 9, according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ from all of eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, to light through the gospel. There's the gospel. He goes back through it with Timothy. And then notice verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not what? Ashamed. You see, it's a very real deal for us. And I'm afraid it's a real deal that we've already succumbed to. We've already fallen way far, way down into this shameful state of mind and thinking in every circumstance, in every relationship in life. And I'll give you a list of reasons when I get to the end of this of why we have done that. But it's very real for us. Look at verse 15. Here's a couple of guys that fell into it. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them who are Phagellus and Hermogenes. In other words, they were ashamed and they left. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Anephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. You see, this one continued steadfast in the gospel, so much so that he would go to Paul in prison and minister to his needs. He wasn't ashamed of any of this. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, after all this discussion about being ashamed, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a real deal for you, Timothy. And if you and I are faithful as a church, as a people of God, it's going to be a real deal for us. And it's going to be a real deal that you'll face every single day. Again, in every conversation, every circumstance. So let me ask you this. What's happened? Because I see very little shame in the preaching of the gospel anymore. Somehow, in the Western church, we figured out how to preach the gospel and remove all the shame. And that's not okay. We avoid shame 
in a number of ways. Let me just mention a few of these, and I've got to get to the next part of this passage. But we avoid the shame when we just fall silent. And, and Dylan, I'll, I'll pick on you because my son's not here. It's as a real deal for you than anybody in this house this morning. Carson as well. Because I can't think of anybody in a more difficult position than you two boys right now. It's a real deal. And we fall into shame when we close our mouth. When we say, well, you know, I, 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 I'm just going to stay out of this conversation. I heard the comment, but I'm just going to kind of leave that alone. I don't want to stir anything up. I'm just going to kind of walk away from this. Or then we tell ourselves, but I probably wouldn't say the same thing. All those are excuses just to keep your mouth closed. You're avoiding shame. That's all we're doing every time we close our mouth. The second thing is, we, and this is where I got to last, and I jumped a little ahead of myself, we, we remove the elements of the gospel that are shameful. And this is what the Western church is doing. I come back to this, and this is what I hear all the time. And I won't mention any names. I cut names out of my sermon this morning because Nathan and I know quite a few that's pretty high up. They've, they've taken the shame out of the gospel. I want you to look with me. Look at back at verse 16 and 17. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 18, let me get going with this gospel, for the wrath of God. And he's often running run with the gospel. Son, you really going to start your gospel that way? For the wrath of God? How about God loves you? How about God has a purpose for your life? How about God wants to bless you? How about God thinks so much of you? Paul's like, well, okay, here's how I begin it. For the wrath of God. And I'm going to spend three chapters teaching you about your sin and how it separated you from God before I ever get to the good news about what God has done to save you from judgment, from death, from your sin. And see, we've taken all that out. We scarcely mention it anymore. I heard a gospel presentation from one of the, no, the largest church in the SBC, and he didn't mention anything about wrath, anything about sin, anything about the judgment of God. Not a word. He jumped right to that part where God loves you and sent his son to die for you. Pray with me. His exact words. Pray with me. Paul says, no, this is how I begin, for the wrath of God. So we fall silent, we remove the elements. We're absolutely just unprepared for what is certainly coming. The Lord said this in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Why do we struggle with that and try to change that so much? God's designed this gospel to be hated and despised and shameful and offensive. If we preach it faithfully, the same thing is going to come to us. Jesus warns us, since they hated me, they're going to hate you. Why do we struggle so much then? Because we turn around and we long for the acceptance of the world. It's not going to work. And if it does work, you've abandoned the gospel of God. That's just the truth of the matter. 
if you figured out how to communicate the gospel to your lost loved ones and it does not offend them, you're not being faithful to the gospel. Now hopefully that offense is going to break their heart and bring them to repentance and faith in Christ and they're going to turn in great joy of heart and thanksgiving and confess Jesus. That's what you want, but you have to understand that the first thing that's going to strike their heart is the offense of God. Because they're going to understand that where you sit now, you're under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. John warns us, you better be careful. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. John goes on to say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we need to get over this. We need to get over our love for the world. It's funny, when the Lord was born, the angels say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. But it doesn't stop there. It says peace among men with whom he is pleased. There is no peace among men without, that he is not pleased. He came to cause great strife and division. And we do that when we faithfully preach the gospel. Now I want to show you this. Look back with me in verse 16. So why is Paul not ashamed of this gospel? He tells us very clearly. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for or because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now when I explain this passage, hopefully you'll understand why we cannot be ashamed of this gospel. Now, when he says that it's the power of God unto salvation, he's not saying that it's divinely powerful. He's not saying it's really powerful. He's not saying this gospel is so powerful it can bring life up from the dead. That's not what that phrase means. This phrase means the gospel is the effectual working of God to save. And I'm going to have to say this a number of ways for you to get this because you think of the gospel as the offer of salvation, and it's not that. The gospel is the power of salvation. It's unto salvation. The gospel is described here as not the offer again, but the accomplishment. The gospel of God is the accomplishment of your salvation by the power of God. Let me show you this. Look back with me in verse 5. Stay with me. This is very important for us to understand. Paul says, through whom in verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. See that word bring about? It's the word ace. In other words, Paul says, the grace that I've received and the apostleship that I've received has brought about the obedience of nations. It's accomplished that. And this is the very same word that the Lord uses in verse 16 when he says the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is that. It accomplishes that. It's not the offer of that. In other words, the gospel is good news because it's about what God has done concerning His Son, and it effectually works salvation for all who believe. In other words, for all who are of faith. This is the demonstration of the power of God. Right? Listen, the gospel is not something that tells us what we must do to be saved. It tells us what God has done to save us through His power. Again, we think wrongly of this gospel when we think of it as an offering. It is not that in any way, shape, or form. It is what God has done 
to save us. Let me give you an example of this because I need you to understand this so you won't be ashamed. Let me take you back to creation. When God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. In the instant that God spoke, God's word was effectual and powerful to accomplish what God said. When we think of this in relationship to the gospel, when God speaks through his gospel or through his word, men are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His gospel is effectual to save us. When we think about this in relationship to the law, this might help. When God gave the law, Paul will describe it in Romans 8 as weak as it was. You see, the law could not do what we needed it to do, and that was to save us. But the gospel of God does exactly what God wants it to do because the gospel does save us. Think of it in comparison to the effectual call of God. Paul will say this in Romans 8, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to his image, so that they would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he has glorified. It's just like that. Everything God does is effectual. And so when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the gospel that accomplishes your salvation, right? Now, I need to bring this in relationship to a pastor and then, then we'll finish and hopefully you'll, you'll get this and we can button all this up. Is there any power in a preacher? Let me answer that for you. Not a bit. Is there any power when I preach? Probably many would say amen to this, but not a bit. Where's the power? It is every bit in God. Now, all men preach with words, but God preaches with power. And it's a very different thing. When I preach to you the gospel, it is the offer. When God preaches to you the gospel, it is the accomplishment. It's a very different thing. Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, Brethren, beloved of God, knowing his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel itself, not the preaching of it, is a demonstration of God's power to save. It is always of God. It is always His power. It is always His word. And it's never of men. So let me ask you the question. Why are you ashamed and why don't you preach it? It's not your power. It's not you who are saving. And I think we've forgotten that, haven't we, Nathan? It's not us who save anyone. It is always of God. Let me give you an illustration. I'll be done. Several years ago now, we decided to go to Guatemala. And being a pharmacist, I immediately knew what my job would be. So I bought the largest North Face duffel bag that I could find. I filled it up with medicine. I toted it on a plane. I headed off to Guatemala. I got there. I threw it on top of a bus. I strapped it down and I rode to a village and I set up shop. And I began seeing patients and giving medicine. Second year, I realized how effective this was going to be. So I bought another large duffel bag. This one was yellow. Filled it up with medicine. Went to Guatemala with two bags of drugs. Can't do that anymore, by the way. I get there. 
throw them on top, strap them down, go to a village, give away all the drugs. Let me ask you this. Where did the power lie? It wasn't in the pharmacist. Wasn't in the duffel bag. It wasn't in me throwing them on top of a van, carrying to them. It wasn't in me seeing the patient. The power didn't come until they took the pill because the power was in the pill. And so when I preach to you the gospel, I have the temptation to feel shamed. I'm powerless. In fact, I stumble with my words. I'm not a good preacher by any stretch of the imagination. But then I'm reminded of why Paul was not ashamed. Because what I'm doing is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Why are you ashamed? In reality, this has nothing to do with you. We're just simply asking you to strap a bag on top of your truck and drive some medicines to some people that are sick. Power's not in you. The ability doesn't need to come for you. It's just in what's in the bag or literally what's in the book. As Christians, don't be ashamed. Listen, when you preach the gospel, and I'll get into this part of Romans, there are those out there who God will grant faith and they will believe. God is literally sending you on a rescue mission to save your brothers and sisters from the wrath to come. Because when they hear the gospel, they will hear it in power because they'll hear it from God and they will believe. Now, the majority won't, according to the scriptures. They're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to laugh at you. But hey, I'm not ashamed. I'm here to rescue my family from the wrath to come. Christian, don't be ashamed. Be faithful. This is his power and this is his way. Unbeliever, let me say this, and I am actually done. This is the only hope for you. This is absolutely the only hope for life. I hate to offend you, but out of love, I will offend you. You're under the judgment of God. And we see that in the world because of all the immorality that's going on in our life. But don't deflect and look at the world. You're under the wrath of God because you fail to glorify God. You think you're a decent guy doing your own thing. You don't hurt anybody. You're just trying to do good, go to your job, take care of your family. I'm not a bad person. Well, according to Romans 3, you don't even understand. You're morally offensive to God because you fail to glorify God. You too are under the wrath of God. But God hasn't left you there. His good news is this. He sent His Son, born of a virgin, to die on a cross in your place to pay for your sins. And the Bible says, if you put your faith in him, you will be saved from the wrath to come and you will be adopted into the family of God. Let's pray.